Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed, and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nancy. Let us pray. How grateful we are, loving God, for this place of safety <clears throat> and warmth and welcome, this place of grace where your love is found, where your gospel is heard, and where your call is experienced and responded to. We pray, Lord, that you'll again speak to us in these moments ahead in ways that we won't miss and in ways we each need to hear your loving voice. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The preacher and author Fred Craddock was preaching in Blue Ridge, Georgia one Sunday while the minister was on vacation. He was preaching on the parable of the prodigal son. That story of the son who pressured his father to give him his share of the inheritance early, then squandered it all wastefully, foolishly, and became penniless. The pigs were eating better than he was, and so he went home embarrassed and ashamed to beg his father's forgiveness. The father spotted him before he got there, ran to embrace him, and forgave him of his sins before he even had a chance to ask for that forgiveness, and he throws his son a feast. After the service in the greeting line, a man said to that guest preacher, I really don't care much for that, frankly. He asked the man why, and the man said he just didn't like that story because to him it seemed morally irresponsible. Craddock said, 
Well, what do you mean by that? Forgiving the boy, the man replied. Craddock asked, well, what would you have done? To which the man responded, I think when he came home, I would have had him arrested. Craddock writes, this fellow was serious. He's an attorney. I thought he was going to tell me a joke, but he was really serious. He belonged to this unofficial organization nationwide, never has any meetings, doesn't have a name, but it's a very strong network that I call quality control people. They're moral police, mandatory sentences and no parole, mind you, and executions. Craddock then asked the man, what would you have given the prodigal? To which the church member responded, six years. Philip Yancey tells the story of how during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, well, other religions had different versions of God appearing in human form. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of a return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. Well, what's the rumpus about, he asked, and heard in his reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among all religions, to which Lewis responded, oh, that's easy, it's grace. After some discussion, his friends agreed. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Aware of our inbuilt resistance to grace, Jesus talked about it often. He described a world overflowing with God's grace, where the sun shines on people, good and bad, where birds gather seeds gratis, neither plowing, neither plowing nor harvesting to earn them, where untended wildflowers burst into bloom on the rocky hillsides. Like a visitor from a foreign country who notices what the natives often overlook, Jesus saw grace everywhere, yet he never analyzed or defined grace. He almost never used the word. Instead, he communicated grace. He embodied it through the way he lived and through the way he loved. And so I invite us to consider it this morning. What is grace? And as believers in Jesus, what does grace look like? in our lives? It's the question that Paul points us to in his letter to the Romans. 
He talks about how in our baptism we share in the death as well as in the resurrection of Christ. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Here's how our reformed Christian tradition defines it. Grace is the love that God pours into our lives through the redemptive sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ that makes things right between us and God, not based on our perfect lives, because this side of heaven, they will never be perfect, but based on God's perfect love for us. We sometimes fail to see and to receive the unconditional and unearned love that God has for us. We instead think that perfection is what's required and without it, we are outside the reach of God's embrace. We sometimes fail to see and take seriously the unconditional and unearned love that God has for others, our brothers and and sisters and, and friends and enemies. And we instead view them with judgment, resentment. We clothe, we close ourselves off from them. We turn our backs on them instead of run to them with joy and open arms as the father does in that story of the prodigal son. In the great American movie that is filled with all kinds of heavy theological themes, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Matthew Broderick plays a high school student who toward the end of his senior year one day fools his parents into thinking that he's sick. He stays home from school and ends up having one of the most fun and adventure-filled days of his life. His sister, the rule follower, is so worried, so angry, that he gets away with everything It's always been that way. It torments her to no end. And finally, at the end of the movie, she skips school herself to try and catch her brother. In an unexpected turn of events, she ends up getting arrested. And she's sitting there in the police station in a character played by Charlie Sheen, a person I don't often reference in sermons, but... He plays the character in this scene, and he's sitting right there next to her, looking like a real tough guy, and he says to her with all his charm, well, what's your problem? And she answers, I hate my brother. (laughs) And he says, I know what your problem is. You need to worry a little bit less about your brother and a little bit more about yourself. There's something about the gospel that calls us to turn away from worrying about other people's sins. Sometimes people remark to their pastor, you need to be tougher with us in your sermons. Most of the time, what they mean when they say that is you need to be tougher with everyone else regarding their sins, and I know exactly what they are. The gospel calls us to turn away from worrying about our neighbor's sins, and even to realize that our own are forgiven so that we too might walk in newness of life.
in Gwen's baptism just a few moments ago, we celebrated God's grace, God's unearned love. We celebrate in baptism that we've died with Christ, we've been crucified with Christ, we will be resurrected with Christ. The old life is gone, a new life is begun, both for the person being baptized as well as for all those who will accept that gift. A little bit later in the service, we'll be ordaining and installing new church officers. In that act, we bear witness to, we celebrate God's grace, God's unearned love. For without an abundant measure of God's grace, none of us that are called by God to serve and to lead would be able to say yes to that call. Friends, in what part of your life are you in need of God's unearned love? In what private corner of your heart are you in need of God's forgiveness and of God's invitation to be welcomed home? There's a gut-wrenching scene in the Korean film entitled Secret Sunshine that captures the scandal of grace better than any other moment that I've ever witnessed. The scene takes place in a prison as protagonist Shin A goes to visit her son's murderer who is in prison. Shin A, a new convert to Christianity, wants to forgive him. Her friends tell her she doesn't need to see him face to face in order to forgive him, but she insists. She wants to see him in person, and truth be told, she wants to see the reaction on his face when she says those words. And yet, when she sits down to confront the prisoner on the other side of the glass, Shin A finds him unexpectedly happy, peaceful, and even filled with joy. You look better than I expected, she tells him, before explaining that the new life she'd found in God had prompted her to come and to forgive him. She's so grateful to feel God's love and grace that she wanted to spread his love by coming to visit her son's murderer. But then the shocker, the prisoner, the killer of her son, has also come to faith in Christ. He says, since I came here, I have accepted God in my heart. The Lord has reached out to me as a sinner. Is that so? replies Shanae, crestfallen and shaken. It's good you have found God, she says tentatively. The convicted murderer continues, yes, I'm so grateful God reached out to a sinner like me. He made me kneel to repent my sins and God has absolved me of them. And this is where Shanae begins to wilt. God has forgiven your sins? She mutters in disbelief. Yes, he replies. And I found inner peace. My repentance and absolution have brought me peace. Now I start and end each day with prayer. I always pray for you, Miss Lee. And I will pray for you until the last day of my life. And this hits her hard. When she leaves the prison, she collapses overcome by the horror of an idea she had not even considered, that God 
could beat her to the punch in absolving her son's murderer, offering this criminal the only absolution he needed. Unfortunately, Shin A can't accept this seeming injustice. How can a law-abiding good citizen like her and a convicted child killer be on the same level in terms of God's grace? She can't take that. She can't put that, uh, make sense of that. And she abandons God because of it. The author, Jen Michael, puts it this way. Grace is not only needed for the moment of conversion, the moment we suddenly or slowly come to our senses and realize that we are spiritually bankrupt, having nothing to bring to God and everything to receive. Grace is also required for the long season of cultivated growth that follows rebirth. By grace we set out, by grace we are also sustained. Grace has as much to say about our endings as it has to say about our beginnings. And so friends, what does God's grace mean to you? And have you experienced it in ways that go deep in your life? Have you discovered the core promise of our Christian faith that God does not love us because we have earned that love, because we are perfect, because we have done something or achieved something and now deserve that love? God loves us because God chooses to love us, full stop. It's unconditional. There is no minimum criteria we need meet. It is free, unearned, and more abundant than we could ever imagine. And just like the overflowing love that the father has for the prodigal son in that parable that Jesus told, God's love for us, all of us, will never end. In the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.